obviously there's a bit of discontinuity. I don't know what Narayan said. And uh, so you just have to just ask whatever you want to ask. I'll just say a few words and then we can open it up. Vipassana or insight meditation, uh, the title gives it away. That is, Vipassana is translated as insight, seeing into. So the entire structure of the Buddha's teaching rests on this ability to see clearly and deeply. You can study and chant and bow, and if you don't develop that capacity to see clearly and deeply, it's going to be limited. So that's why it's called insight meditation, a deep seeing, an extraordinary seeing, uh, insightful seeing. Um, mindfulness is, the word sati has been translated as mindfulness. Uh, you could also use terms like observation, attention, awareness, depending on how you use it. As I'm using mindfulness tonight, or observation, whatever. Uh, mindfulness is preconceptual. There are no thoughts in it. It's something that is prior to thinking. It has nothing to do with ideas at all. You may develop ideas after you see something, but that's not mindfulness. That's thinking about what it is that mindfulness saw. Uh, mindfulness only happens in the present moment the only time it can happen. It's also not for or against anything that it sees. That's its why it's so precious. It's like a clear mirror. And when it gets refined, it's sometimes referred to as mirror mind. And its value is exactly that, that uh, instead of seeing with eyes that are clouded by yesterday, all of us are really seeing through yesterday's eyes, our education, our conditioning, our experiences, and so forth. Uh, is it possible for there to be a freshness of seeing that is uh, a quality of seeing that um, is unbiased, that's not reactive, uh, that has no direction other than to reflect back what's there? And that's one of the main things we learn. Out of that, learning, or is learning how to pay attention, comes many, many beautiful things. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. And I don't know what has been talked about or what's on your mind, but I'll do my best. Anything we can talk over together? Please. You want to get results. Already big problem. Uh, in part, one of the first obstacles that we all face when we learn this art of seeing, of observation, is that our mind has had so much training in being calculating. I mean, I will mention a few things. But I just, uh, the, the, the real benefits come when the awareness is seeing without concern for those benefits. If the mind is concerned with what it's going to get out of the seeing, that means that part of the mind is taken up with, did I get it? What is it? Uh, am I close? Is it far away? It's taken a while, whatever it is. Uh, and that uh, clouds the mind a bit, that colors it. Uh, I would say probably all or most of us start that way. We can't help it. Well, we've been well trained, uh, and it's part of being intelligent. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, so that when we approach something, and let's say we see it, let's say it's even a breath, or a sensation in the body, or a sound, or a thought, uh, we have some instrumental idea. I'm going to see this in order to get something out of it. Uh, we wouldn't be learning how to see if it didn't take us somewhere, so your question is a good question. It's just that uh, in it, you have to, I'll throw it back to you, see where your question was coming from, 
and you don't have to throw away any objectives you may have had in terms of learning how to see clearly, but understand that clear seeing doesn't have any of those objectives. Okay. Uh, what can come out of it? What can come out of seeing clearly? Let's say uh, I see, if you don't mind my being personal, you're wearing eyeglasses. Me too. Okay. Now supposing, do you need them? Are they pretty important to you? Mine are. If you take mine away, I'm like this. Okay. Uh, if you give me those glasses, and I, I don't know, same with you perhaps, I don't know. Uh, does it make any difference in the clarity with which you see the outer world? I mean, it's a question, does it? Or is it gonna, will your life be exactly the same uh, if you're foggy or blurred or you think it would be the same? Yeah. So that what we'd be seeing would be more accurate. Let's say we'd see that green is green. Uh, we'd see the expressions on people's faces. If uh, our child was worried, we'd see it, uh, etc. So that's outer seeing. Most of us are, I've had a fair amount of practice one way or another with that. It's the very same thing. If we don't, uh, if we're unable to see clearly our inner life, uh, we're behaving out of, out of uh, an, uh, a sense of how things are that's not really true. A very ancient image that's used is in the dusk, uh, seeing uh, a rope as a snake, because you don't see it clearly. When you see it clearly, there's nothing to be frightened of. It's just a rope. Okay, what if we could see fear clearly? And so we're getting a little closer to your question. Um, what is being suggested is, uh, I may as well give the most important use of seeing, of mindfulness. It's liberation, freedom from suffering. Uh, for example, most human beings, perhaps all of us, have fears. And we pay an enormous price in our life because of fear. It uh, cripples us often, emotionally. We don't do things we'd like to do, etc. I don't, you all know this well enough. Uh, if you can learn how to be mindful of what we call fear, not the word, uh, something happens. Now, the quality of the mindfulness is what I suggested earlier, that it would be non-judgmental. No, it's not the thought, I want to see this fear so that I can finally be done with it. That, uh, to some degree, uh, poisons the seeing. Out of the clear seeing can come freedom from fear. Out of the clear seeing can come freedom from uh, whatever else you may want to ask about. So I would say that is the crucial uh, contribution that clear seeing can make. Liberation in the Buddhist teaching doesn't come from the, the desire to be free. As that's good because that gets you going. It comes from clear seeing. All your yearning in the world won't get you free unless you can actually see your situation. And here, of course, primarily inner situation. Um, is that a start? Well, did you have something in mind? No? Yeah. No, but if there are, because there's more to it. Um, pain, if you have physical. Have you been doing practice or are you new to the practice? But this style of observing what is? Okay. Have you had the experience yet of the difference between? let's say when there's pain in the physical body and you're able to, uh, instead of coping with it, putting up with it or denying it or take your mind off it, but instead uh, just bring a, a gentle, steady, non-judgmental mindfulness to that physical pain. Have you had that experience yet? Has it made a difference? Okay, so you, you, so you already are beginning to see it. Now, it's the same with emotional pain. And of course, our main problem is, is mental pain. And uh, liberation is primarily that. Uh, finally, the, cl the, the, the clear seeing is about clearly seeing, answer the question, who am I? 
and it's not the answer is not in words. I'm a this or I'm a that. I'm a, a man, a woman, an American, or this. You know, those are conventional answers. They are relatively true, but it's clearly seeing into the nature of what this is, this known as me or this self. Um, as the seeing gets uh, more clear, the world, our sense of what the world is, what our life is, changes, and. Hopefully it changes for the better. I don't think people would be doing this for thousands of years if it didn't bring some improvement. Then again, people have been at war for thousands of years too. And they seem to think it's going to do something great. And there's always a new generation getting ready. Uh, sees how wonderful it is. They're all excited, ready to pick up guns and put on uniforms. No one seems to learn. So uh, it's for you to find out. But So you've already gotten some sense that it has some value? Okay. Now, if you practice it like any other skill, uh, uh, mindfulness can become like a flame. I mean, that strong. And uh, when it gets steady, too, kind of abiding, uh, sustained, when that quality of attention touches whatever it touches, something happens. Uh, oh, pure awareness, pure observation, that is, it has no objective other than the clear seeing. That's its value. has tremendous transformative power. It's not trying to change anything. It's like a flame is not trying to burn up anything. That's its nature. Something Mindfulness is an energy, in other words, a very, very subtle. The more you practice and refine it, the more subtle it is. And when it touches things, uh, something happens to what it touches. In the uh, Pali uh, language, one of the meanings of uh, sati, is, uh, or mindfulness, is that which sets things right. It seems to have a beneficial effect. Um, and as you apply it, more and more you see that. It seems like you already have some evidence. I, is that so? Okay, good. Yeah. Please. Depends. It's uh, it depends on language. I don't know what you mean. In other words, how you use uh, mindfulness. Sometimes intuition has a kind of an unusual sort of like something that comes to you now and then. Mindfulness is very ordinary. That's the beauty of it. It's quite ordinary. Uh, That's right. And I'm wondering, is that close to what mindfulness is? Well, uh, no. Yes and no. Okay. Uh, because mindfulness is, uh, in, is, is something that is done, can be done all the time. Wash your hands. You can be aware. You can be mindful that you can feel the texture, the water, the temperature, the hands rubbing, you eat, you can take. So you can do, mindfulness is something you can practice and do. Uh, when the mind gets quiet, and I'm, I'm speaking now from a, a Buddhist perspective, and I hope it matches something like what you call intuition. Uh, out of the, one of the things that we discover uh, when the mind gets quiet, I think to begin with, particularly in a community like Cambridge and environs, where people have so much education and have read lots of books, we tend to think that intelligence is is rational and logical. It is. That's one form of intelligence. There's another kind of intelligence that when the mind gets silent, when the mind, let's say when thinking becomes quiescent, stops, there's a knowing that, we, that all of us have access to. No one has gotten cheated here. Uh, that enables you to know the body, and in fact the body start, has an intelligence that can, uh, can begin to go to work if you stop thinking so much. And in that clarity of mind, uh, there's much more of a possibility of an adequate response and knowing, a kind of knowing. 
and it's, it, uh, it is experienced somewhat like the way you're, it, you're not thinking, and that's, it's a access to, uh, the Tibetans have a way of putting it, they put, call it um, the cognizing power of emptiness. It's uh, mysterious to me, I've been practicing for a while, uh, when the mind becomes still and empty, in that sense, it's like this room. You know, like, we don't usually care about the space. We're focusing on the people, the lighting, and so forth. But there's space here. Okay. Um, so the metaphor of space is often used, uh, of empty space. But the metaphor is limited, because this empty space doesn't have cognizing power. It's just empty. Okay. When the mind becomes empty of thought, it's like, another kind of organic intelligence is released. And uh, with meditation, that can be, it can be not just intermittent, it can be something that we have access to on a more steady, in a more steady way, rather than uh, now and then, you know, we, we have a, a flash, we used to call it that, I don't know if people still call it that. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, but mindfulness strictly speaking, as I'm using it, isn't exactly what you're saying, but it, it opens up into it. Yeah. Please. Is there a way to use the mindfulness um, really for me to get to an important decision and I really want to speak to a very complicated situation and I really want to speak to it so I don't know I can't give you a guarantee or a warranty or money, money back we can give you, yes. Um, very often people will come to, to meditation with a problem that they want to solve. And that blocks them. Because they're so uh, concerned with solving X that um, they don't develop the kind of mind that it can actually help them solve X more. Uh, so let's say if I were, let's say I have an important decision to make and I gather, you know, there's something and I could feel, you know, it's important. Step number one, if I were doing it, I would be aware of how invested I am in the outcome. And then I might feel confused. Do you ever feel confused about it? Yes, okay. Okay, the key in meditation, it's an art, can you learn how not to be confused by confusion? I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, the mind is confused. Uh, often when that happens, we get hysterical, you know, sort of like, oh, 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 you know, and then we, tr we grope for some pseudo-clarity, okay. Uh, but from the point of view of a bigger picture of the mind, confusion is just one mind state among many. There, you know, you, all of the, it's just one visitor, it comes, it goes. We're not always confused, sometimes we're quite clear, okay. So step number one is, uh, I'm just using myself, um, I would take a look at how confused I am and how much investment I have in getting that answer. Because to some degree that's blocking me. I'll make it me instead of you. Okay. Um, if you try to figure it out often, not always, some things can be figured out, some things have to be like technical problems, but I gather this is more than a, just information and technical It's not how to, yes, it's not a how to assemble a, uh, a vacuum cleaner or something, I understand, okay. Um, if you try to, typically what we do is try to think it through, and we may make lists, you know, like if I do this, I get that, but then I don't get that, and, I, and we have these long lists and then we get a headache, you know, okay. Uh, the attempt to solve the problem on that same level that the problem exists, this is from a meditative point of view, uh, we're looking to the old mind to give us an answer, and it's that exactly that mind that got us into the problem. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Yeah. So uh, meditation offers the possibility of help from some place that is not the old mind, which is sort of a, you're chasing your own tail, going around and around and around. And so when the mind, we're back to when the mind is clear, and how do you get clear? Uh, by, uh, let's say, opening up to the confusion, the different decisions, hearing the mind. It's like a civil war can be going on inside the mind. Uh, if you can sit, if the breathing helps you, fine. 
I'm now applying insight meditation to it. Very often these problems are solved not on a timetable. When the mind gets clear, suddenly the answer is very, very clear. But let's say you don't have the luxury of doing that. You've got to decide by uh, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. I, I'm making something up. Okay, so we can adapt the method. It has been done. I've done it. Others have done it. So let's say I, I have this struggle going on. If Should I do X or Y? And they're fighting with each other. We're in conflict. And, w- and there's confusion. I would relax, uh, soften to the civil war. At that point, there's no more civil war. There's only a civil war because X is in center stage of the mind, and we're identified with X. Then Y comes along and is trying to edge it out and say, no, no, that's, not, that's the wrong decision. This is the right decision. And then there's struggle and a, a use of energy. What if you don't join sides, but you just uh, allow the civil war to rage? Let the mind uh, say what it has to say. Now, that itself is an art, to not intervene at all. Just relax. The breathing can help stabilize you. And listen to how the mind is first X, then Y, then back and forth. Uh, And maybe there's confusion, and maybe there's fear. You know, oh my God, if I make the wrong decision, my whole life will be affected. Then you look at the fear. It isn't just a rational, logical, because we can all do that right now. We don't need meditation. We want something from a deeper, more significant level that is not irrational, but it's deeper than rational. Uh, The degree to which the mind gets clearer, uh, you have a much better chance of seeing what really needs to be done. Here's something that uh, when when people hear this, especially Americans, uh, it drives them crazy. The, uh, and maybe you'll want to leave after you hear it. Um, the clearer the mind gets, the fewer the choices you have. And Americans love choices, right? We want to have a mall with 10,000 flavors of ice cream, a million, you know, it's not just Americans now, it's the modern world. Uh, that sounds like uh, imprisonment. What do you mean I have fewer choices? This is the land of opportunity. I want to have lots of choices. What I'm trying to say is when the mind is clear, it's so obvious what you don't want. Do you see what I'm getting? That you actually have fewer chan- choices because you're not wasting your time in all kinds of things that are petty, trivial, irrelevant, uh, forms of old conditioning that maybe worked uh, when you were in the fourth grade, but they don't work anymore. Uh, and th- as the mind is quiet, it can see... Uh, here's... Um, this may sound irrelevant. Someone after an enlightenment experience was asked, this is in ancient China, uh, what, is, what, ha- what happened? And he said, what did you learn from, from uh, awakening? He said, I learned that the grass is green and that the sky is blue. You know, like, oh, come on, give me a break. I already know that. But do we really? So when the mind is clear, whatever it is that's raging inside of you, that's, uh, if you can let it tell its story, without trying to make it have an outcome that you're not sure you know which the outcome is anyway. Uh, it can, in other words, the confusion can take you to clarity if you have the, the stomach to put up with it. Let me uh, this is, uh, give you a concrete example of this. I used, to, uh, I used to teach at a university. And in the senior year, uh, very, we would have, we would, people would meet with their advisor, everyone would have one academic advisor. Uh, there were large lines of people who were, didn't know what they wanted to do. It's getting close to graduation, and parents were getting upset, and, you know, if you go to law school, I'll buy you a car. If you, uh, if you become a hippie, you're disowned, you know, whatever. This is the 60s. So, uh, <laughs> And so people would come and they were confused. And I would give them basically the same advice, even though it was a little, because I was beginning to learn these things. I would say, be with your confusion. And say, I don't know what to do. I'd say, hey, be with that. Let it, see where that goes. Instead, and, and by about a month before graduation, it was amazing how many people, all, oh yeah, no, I know what I'm going to do. Law, social work, I'm going to be a teacher. Oh, everything just worked this way out. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm totally clear. Very few people had the strength 
some could say, I don't know, and even graduate not knowing, and saying, I'm going to live with this one until it becomes clear. Most people couldn't bear it, and they just made up anything just to, you know, just to, yes, I will get married. No, I won't get married. Yes, I will go to law school. I hate law school, but I'll, nothing personal. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's just that these are the kinds of things that, do you see what I'm getting at? So uh, meditation uh, approach to conflict, a problem is a soft, without, uh, the value of it is not being so in a hurry to get the answer. And in a sense, letting the question, the answer is in the question usually, if you can just let the question really express itself. It sounds a little mystical and poetic, but, I, but it, it does work. It makes some sense? A little bit? Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Please. I think you're going to have to ask Narayan that, because I don't use that term. I can make a, a guess, uh, but it's what I was saying. Real mindfulness is non-conceptual. It uh, happens in the present tense. It's non-judgmental, etc. I don't know if she, is, if she, if she means wise, by wise mindfulness that. Now, in the teachings, mindfulness leads to wisdom. In other words, clear seeing is what takes you to wisdom, and often they're inseparable, really. When, but clear seeing is wisdom. When you really, it's not like, now I see clearly, except when we talk, we have to make it like, this leads to that. You see clearly, and then this will lead to wisdom. In clear seeing, the seeing is, is, the, is the wisdom. But I honestly don't know how Narayan is using that term, and I don't want to muddy up the water here. Please. No, if you're really being mindful and paying attention to everything, like you don't, you don't lock yourself out of your house, you don't move your iron on, you're really paying attention. Do, do you possibly miss anything with your mind not going to a place that connects you with something else that may be also important? I don't. I'm not sure of your question. Uh, like what? But no one's saying don't. Th no one's saying don't think. But if you're really paying attention to what you're doing, then your mind isn't thinking about Yes, but have you? Do you have that problem that your mind is so mindful that you don't think anymore? I don't want to put unmindfulness down. You know. <laughs> Uh, it's your choice, uh, but uh, maybe this will help. No one's mindful all the time. I asked Krishnamurti, who was my first teacher, who's you know a world esteemed teacher, and I asked him that, and he said, "Of course not." Now, I don't think it's any of our problem of being too mindful. Uh, but what might be a problem, see, is if you have an uh, an agenda where uh, what's hanging over your head is to be perfectly mindful to not miss one breath, one step, one morsel of food, pay it, uh, it would be, you'd be exhausted by 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, it just, it's something that grows and flows more. It's more of a natural entering into life and being sensitive to what's happening to you. So you have to be patient. If you cultivate it, if you practice it, it starts to grow like anything else. Uh, it develops and it becomes more uh, a way of life. It really at first seems like a technique. And of course, you have to start with it as a technique, but so many things start that way. Dance, music, s sport. After a while, it's not so much of a technique as a way of living where uh, you really enjoy and value being awake in this moment. You understand that when you're awake, you're more alive. Now, I'm not going to say never be, m be unmindful. I'm going to leave that up to you. I mean, that would be... No, I, I, I don't want to do that. Um, but maybe you are carrying around the burden of trying too hard to be mindful all the time, and so, no? <laughs> okay, okay. But I'm just wondering but if, if you're always mindful, if you might be losing out on the possibility of some great idea that you kind of missed it or thinking about, well, I shouldn't miss it, it seems like this and that. 
But no, no, if you're doing the dishes mindfully, you're not thinking about the dishes. You're just doing the dishes. It's, that's the now. There's a role for thinking. No one's. I, this is a, a common misunderstanding. It, it, because we're so entrenched in thinking, we've given so much authority to thinking. Uh, we've equated it with living. Uh, many of us, maybe all of us in this room, we get paid to think. And some of us have gotten fame and power and prestige and lots of money and a nice place to live because we're good at thinking. And we're encouraged and we have books and so forth. And then you, this, this comes around and saying there's another quality that's quite useful and that's thought-free wakefulness. Thought-free wakefulness. No one's saying to stamp out thinking, but to begin with, because it's so top-heavy in terms of thinking, we have to make fun of thinking, uh, give you thoughts about thinking that show that it's limited. It is limited, which is not to say that it's not valuable. Okay, so, but the point is balance. It's not, there's nothing wrong with thought, is that we, our relationship to thought is overdone, it's obsessed, and to the point where other aspects of being alive are neglected. So thinking it has its own beauty. You see, that implies that you have so much non-thinking that you, uh, you know, I've got to set aside, some, I, I never think anymore. I've got to <laughs> set aside some time where I think. And I just, when you get to that place, you can, t you take over. <laughs> and I'll sit where you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Follow up on that. Sure. Fine, exactly. But now say a thought comes, a very good thought, probably can lead to something very uh, deep. Say very what? Something very deep. Could be spiritual and some awakening too. So you don't want to miss out on any great thought. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry, yeah. So, I mean, now my attention is cut off. I mean, what do I do? Should I keep uh, washing the dishes or attend to the dishes? Don't answer the door, don't wash the dishes, just run to your cushion. Sit in full lotus and meditate. <laughs> uh, life, you know, in other words, if you make anything an absolute, it does become absurd. That's what I, you know, I'm being absurd now. Uh, if I were to say no thinking under no conditions, or each thing must be done exactly at its time, L let's say uh, a parent is. Uh, getting a meal ready, okay, and they're totally, you know, washing the vegetables, cutting the vegetables. Suddenly, a child crawls into the room bleeding. What would you do? You know that, uh, of course, you drop the dishes and you enter wholeheartedly to the child. You pay attention to the child. Now, uh, the the thing it sounds very academic. Well, but in the process, I might have a great thought about the nature of the universe, or I don't know what thought it is. Um, maybe, but see, life settles it for us. You're not going to be, you know what the priority is. Usually life has, each situation has its own intelligence built into it. And if you pay attention, you'll know what's called for. Here, picking up your child, examining the wound, and doing what's necessary, that's, that's correct action. Okay. Uh, now, here's what I'm getting at. Let's say the instructions on meditation are to sit and follow your breathing, uh, and then sometimes we open it up and you see what's coming and going, and then suddenly you have a tremendous inspiration. Let's say you do computer work, right? I know you do. Okay. And suddenly uh, there's a whole breakthrough, you know, in some program you've been struggling. I don't know, I'm making something up. Okay. Uh, I could solve this and possibly even win a Nobel Prize, but I can't do it because Larry said that, <laughs> you know, that the Buddha said that Krishnamurti said that we have to pay attention. Um, sometimes you pull over to the side of the road, you know, and forget about what Larry said or the Buddha said, you know, it's sort of like, uh, and you enter into it. But I, I can't make that into a rule or, or a principle. It's something that life dictates, you know, it's something spontaneous. But if you find that you're d pulling over to the side of the road every five minutes, <laughs> then you know that that's, that's just, we know how to do that. First of all, 
We've all done lots of thinking, including great thoughts, trivial thoughts. Are you happy with where it's taken you? I mean, as, let's say that's the ex exclusive endeavor. If you are, full speed ahead. But for most of us, it hasn't. So, but it's not to throw it out, because it has its own beauty. It's more to allow something else, another capacity that we human beings have. We don't even know we have it. We haven't been educated to know that there is another kind of, let's say, uh, intelligence. This knowing is a human capacity that's invaluable. It doesn't have to m mean that we stop thinking or throw thought out. And so I, I can't give you a, a, a rule book. It's not a computer program. We're human. We're not, we're not computers. You know, maybe someday computers will prove me wrong. They'll be so human. They'll be more human than I don't know what. But do you see what I'm getting at? So um, there's room for surprises. There's room for dropping what you're doing. There's room, uh, if you pay attention, uh, you know what to do, but, but there is, uh, even when you think, being awake is very, very helpful. I mean, the thinking is clearer. Please. Being, being yes, yeah. yes. Uh, w is there? What's the question? I guess just how to have this kind of experience happen more often. Uh, I did a sweat lodge many years ago. My memory of it is was quite useful and valuable. But uh, it's a dramatic thing that you do. You can't be. It's not something you you do all day long. Obviously, right. <laughs> Uh, you could try it, but I don't think it'll work out too well. Um, so often, for example, even in Dharma circles, there are uh, things to shock the mind. That's another approach. Uh, a teacher might scream at you at the right, or, or so life does it. Suddenly someone dies unexpectedly, and the shock wakes you up to something that takes you to a much deeper level, but then you fall back. And with your sweat, that, oh, that state you had probably isn't here right now. Okay. Uh, so this can make it more um, ordinary. Again, I don't mean it would be exactly the way it was in the sweat lodge, but, but uh, so that there's a quality of sensitivity and wakefulness and intimacy with your experience. That's more a normal part of your life that isn't so special, that only happens either by accident, you know, it just comes uninvited, some of the most beautiful things do come invited. I don't think that you can make enlightenment happen. I think you can lay the groundwork. Like you can open up the windows, but whether the breeze comes in or not, whether you say that's mystical, I, I, I feel it's out of my hands. It's out of all of our hands. But uh, as an ongoing way of life, uh, the practice of bringing awareness into what you're doing uh, is something that little by little can just become a, nor a normal part of just being alive, so that uh, ordinary things are just experienced. Uh, so they're so much more fulfilling. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, we, you know, we have practice groups here, and someone who was a cook, a professional cook, uh, about the seventh or eighth week of our, came in very excited. And um, said, this morning I finally understand what everyone's been talking about, all these books and the Buddha, and etc. Well, what happened? He said, I was chopping broccoli. I remember the vegetable. Okay. Uh, I was chopping broccoli, and suddenly it was the most beautiful activity in the world. I was just totally clear. Uh, my mind was not ahead of the broccoli or behind the broccoli. It was just receiving uh, life in the, sh in the form of broccoli and cutting. And you could see the person was full of tears. Uh, suddenly they felt so alive. 
Now, does that mean we all run out and get buy broccoli and start chopping it? Uh, it's not in the broccoli. <laughs> Finally, it has nothing to do with broccoli. It has to do with the quality of mind that was brought to something rather ordinary. And that's what the sky is blue, the grass is green. Um, uh, we, we're, uh, sometimes there are dramatic things that happen in meditation, quite dramatic, what they call breakthroughs. I'm not denying that. Uh, but the practice is not like you practice now so that in 25 years you'll be really clear. It's that in each moment, this is my understanding of the Buddhist teaching, the essence of it, in each moment, we're either enslaved or free. When we're all caught up, identified, attached, or averse to what we're doing, lost in what we're doing, we're enslaved. In a breath or in a moment when we, we see what's going on, and suddenly there's a clarity and an awakening in that moment, suddenly it's a moment of freedom. So the practice of freedom is something that's ongoing, moment to moment. And then, of course, there are big freedoms, you could say, but these small freedoms are what our life is made up of, and these small slaveries is what our life is made up of. And uh, as you do it, like anything else, it becomes more natural to do it. And you wonder, why did I ever live any other way? So it's not to not do a sweat lodge, you know, but I, I think do a sweat lodge, do all kinds of things. But what we're saying is uh, bring this quality of attention into there's no place where it, it can't be useful for you. Am I making any sense? Yeah. If you're yawning, pay attention to <laughs> the fact that uh, uh, relief is in sight. <laughs> And people seem to be thinking as if they could suspend self and be mindful. My experience, and at times I am mindful, <laughs> is that um, sometimes thought comes and then you're mindful of the thought. Sure. It isn't an either or proposition. If it yeah. were, that might be nice. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, the point of, uh, for example, if you like, try this on your, on your own time. Um, begin your sitting with the breath or metta, whatever, calm your mind down. And just from time to time, uh, just sit and listen to thinking. Now, at first, you'll find it very difficult. Most people do. They'll get, you'll get, you know, it's often called a train of thought. Uh, stay, on the, stay on the platform. But typically what will happen is you'll get on the train and then, you know, <laughs> two stops down, and then you realize that, you know, Central Square is down that way, and you're Park Street, you know. Um, but little by little, uh, you don't get discouraged. Uh, the, the thing with thought is that it's the m very subtle object, but in principle, you can be mindful of thought or pain in the body or the sound of a bird. Uh, it's not only subtle, but because we've had so much conditioning with it, it's so charged that it casts a spell on us. And before we know it, uh, the power that thought has, we've, give, we've given thought that power. In and of itself, a thought is just a thought. And think about that one, or reflect on it. The thought is just, you know that? Did you know that? If you leave here tonight and forget everything, don't forget that one. A thought is a thought. Did you know that? That's what it is. Okay, now if you don't know that, the thought comes up, uh, I'm an awful, horrible, person will never be able to get anything done. You identify with it, energy comes into it. If you make I'm an awful person, you have I'm an awful person. Okay. If you don't, it's a thought. It's like skywriting. Eat uh, garlic's milk. Drink garlic's milk. You know, it just comes by and we're not that interested. I don't know why he's wasting money with that. I'm not going to buy that milk anyway. <laughs> you know, because uh, I eat soy milk because I'm a, you know, I live in Cambridge. We all have soy milk. <laughs> okay. Um, so, sure, you're right. Yeah. Please. Can you talk about um, non-judgmental awareness? Yes. Is it kind of in line with the thought that um, you're not really responsible for your feelings, but you are responsible for what you do with 
No, it's the non-judging has to do with the seeing. Now, the seeing can be while you're sitting, can be directed at the breath, or bodily feelings, or a mood, or anything, really. But you can also bring this quality of awareness into action. It's not limited to a cushion. Uh, because most of the uh, icons in the Buddhist tradition, almost all of them are the Buddha sitting sometimes standing or walking, and sometimes lying down just before death. Uh, you don't see the Buddha vacuuming, <laughs> but, uh, or whatever. Uh, but, our, but you can develop the art of observation really anywhere at any time, and it's in that seeing that I was referring to. What I was referring to is, let's say here's a, here's a mirror. Uh, I'll put, do it differently. Here's a mirror. You put the face of Otto Hitler there. It's just going to reflect Otto Hitler. Take it away. There's no more Otto Hitler. There's no residue. You put Mother Teresa. It just sees Mother Teresa. You take that away. Do you see what I'm getting at? Now, what we're so concerned with results and outcomes and getting somewhere, I've got to get from A to B to, you know, that we never are in A. So the art of practice is, can you be where you already are? Okay. It turns out to, to be a high art. We don't usually, very often, we don't want what we have. And we do want what we don't have. What if you could switch that around even a little bit to want what you have and to not want what you don't have? You would have a much happier life. I'm convinced of it. I don't, want, don't make that an absolute. You know? Is it okay? Uh, in other words, let, let's say, um, when naturalists who love nature look at nature, or us, even if you're not a, a naturalist, you know, uh, let's say you, you really look at a sunset and it's really beautiful. Uh, <clears throat> I've seen some beautiful ones. We all have. And there's just the, the, the beauty is such that it quiets the thinking mind without even trying to. They just the beauty can do that. That's one of its beauties. You know, it's sort of like the thinking mind goes into abeyance and it's just pure sunset and uh, we're with it, and we're able to see that. Uh, there's affection in it. It doesn't mean that we, you know, it's like cold. It's not detached, looking with binoculars at the sunset. It's quite, it's what you were getting at. It's opening up to the sunset. So that the, in real uh, seeing, as it ripens, you know, some of you may be new to this practice, as you do it more, it's the whole being is seeing. It's not just your eyes. The whole being is seeing, and uh, that kind of clear seeing has affection. It has elements of what a scientist does. I mean, if scientists observed with some bias, uh, what kind of science would come out of that? You know. So there's always an attempt to forever uh, purify our ability to to see clearly in science. And I think scientists who love their work, they also have affection when they uh, bring it to the the materials that, they, that, they're, that they're interested in. Uh, in fact, if we went around the room, I'm pretty sure that everyone here has a very high quality of seeing in some realm. For one person, it might be photography. Another person, it might be cooking. Another person, it might be surgery, whatever. Okay. But what's asked in meditation is, can you take that quality of real interest and clear seeing? But now what you're looking at is numero uno. And that gets harder. We just. It's the idea that if you're not seeing, that you're just asking. So I guess my question is that, like, you're not, the idea might be that you're not really responsible for all the feelings that come up and you just want to look at it and have it be clear and then be able to act on knowing what those feelings are. It, it's, uh, you're going in the right direction, but it's. See, it's still very rational and logical, but it's, it's somewhat like that. Um, it, it's the difference between a response and a reaction. Let's say you insult me right now. You know, I have had enough of this stupid talk you've wasted our, you know, and uh, then my if I'm reacting, that just comes out of my conditioning. Oh, yeah, well, who asked you to come? You know, and I'll just, t you know, <laughs> right, right, okay. Okay. 
Okay. No, you know, it, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Have you heard that? Uh, then we wonder, how come everyone is toothless and blind? I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, because we're reacting. You give me a left hook, I give you a right, you know, right to the jaw. Then you kick me, and I hit you over the head with a club. Uh, you know. Then I wonder why we don't have peace and harmony because we don't want it. Okay. Now let's say you insult me, and <clears throat> it hits, and I feel it. And I'm aware of that. It's not, it's not denial or pushing it away. Uh, it, it hits the target. Uh, but instead of just lashing out, uh, this is not the only way, but it's one thing that might clarify what you're asking. Instead, you feel, you feel the hurt, and you're with it. It tends to thin out, you know, or even disappear if you're able to be with it. Then there's, there's some space, and there's the possibility of, of an adequate response. Rather, reaction's mechanical. Your conditioning versus my conditioning. And we, we all, what we think is spontaneous is often it's just conditioning, expressing itself. We're very proud of it. Uh, a lot of it is just mechanical. It's been pour, poured into our brain by the particular culture we live in and so forth. Okay, is there anything fresh that a human being can come to that isn't seeing through yesterday? yesterday's eyes? And the answer of the Buddhist teaching is oh, definitely. So it's something like that. The if you remember the difference between a reaction, which is mechanical, and you have no control, and a response when the mind is clear, then you don't know what's going to come out of that clarity. It's back to the confusion. Uh, but personally, the best friend you have in the world is, is clear seeing. Because that, we don't know what's going to come up in life. Life is full of uncertainty and surprises, uh, disappointments, uh, good things. It's, it's, it's uncertain. Have you all noticed that, that life is uncertain? Okay. So what would be good is if we have this ability to see what's going on in a changing world to us, what's happening to us. Yes, please. So are you saying if I have a new thought, I should see it with affection? See it. Uh, it's not a new age, love your mean thought, I love my, you know, the child within. What? Yes. Well, what I meant was... No, it's a, uh, you don't cultivate the affection. What I was talking about is just part of being human. You see, there's something beautiful in seeing and in learning, you know. Okay, so, no, you don't hold yourself apart. There's something beautiful in life and every, exp every expression of it, yes. When that happens, uh, the interest in practice, first of all, the word practice becomes irrelevant. It's not a, you're not practicing anymore, you're really, you're living. And that kind of motivation, when you really are interested in seeing your own experience and uh, learning how you live, how you actually live, and, uh, and it's not limited to the cushion. Some, it, that's more powerful than all the techniques put together. The techniques are very helpful. So yes, but it's not to, now I'll try to be affectionate to my mean thoughts. Me, you know, mean thoughts come well, in. I kind of think you have to be more affectionate to your mean thoughts because you're so allergic to them. You're so apprehensive, you're so aversive to them. Okay, let me put it this way. I'm speaking from my own practice. Um, If you begin to love clear seeing, to love it, the way you might love other things now, uh, it's not always what, that what comes in front of you is what you want to be there. Let's say someone dear to you dies, and I have a vivid memory of this, you know, when my father died. We were very close. Um, it was very painful. I took his ashes and I put them in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, the pain was quite there, and I was fully present. I thought I had been before, because I'd been practicing with the grief before. But this one time, I think I had it closer to what I'm trying to say. Um, it was no separation between myself and the pain of loss. But here's the part that I'm trying to, s to get at. There's a certain kind of fulfillment that I remember to this moment that was there because I was doing the best thing I could be doing for myself under, in, in this, under these conditions. Somebody really died who I loved. I really felt the pain, 
There was no pushing away. There was no trying to explain it. There was no getting lost in it. It was intimate, receiving it, and fully receiving it, but being as clear as I could be. And just, this is what it's like. It's not thinking, oh, this is like a, you know, a, a scientist with a little, uh, this is what it's like when one loses more someone that one loves. Uh, let's say I'll put that down. It's not like that at all. It's, um, there isn't anything better I could be doing than at that moment for myself, even just selfishly, than fully receiving the pain. The pain was there. It's not like I put it there. The death was there. All this was, in other words, I was with the, uh, the, the world as it really was, facts rather than uh, blah, blah, as to how I wanted it. And prior to that, I thought I had been doing some pretty good grieving as well, meaning open, not running away, but I had little things I was adding to it, and this one time I didn't. And there was a certain fulfillment in it. Now, it's not that I, I want someone else who I love to die so I can get that back again. It's th that's what happened. And that was my best way that I know of being alive uh, in that situation. Does that make any sense? Really? Because uh, you look a little... I knew there was an accept in there. Yeah. I wasn't trying to be nice to myself. I was just fully attentive to what the actuality of that moment was, which was pain, because someone I loved died. I, it wasn't contrived. I think I'll, it wasn't I read Vipassana book, and none of that. You see, it was just, but of course I've been practicing for a while. I, the, tell me what you just said again. Go over that again. I'm not sure I got it. Okay, suppose someone dies and you feel happy they died. There was some awful, rotten person who, t who was mean to you and cruel. And, okay, then you would be with that. It's not that you're supposed to love that, that, uh, that person. It's that you, it's, the training is in being honest. Yes. <laughs> that, you know, I, I just think it's interesting to look at your most gross thoughts or feelings completely unbiasedly. Yes. I'm thinking you don't remember to do that. But that's what the practice is. I think we tend to try to love people and think nice words to them. Well, if you do that, then see that. But that is, right tonight, we're mainly talking about seeing, observation, mindfulness. Uh, so uh, whatever it is that you're going to say, how to be mindful of that, is to be mindful. It's, it's being honest. It's training and being mindful of how it is for you in that moment. It, there's not a particular way you're supposed to be except clear. Now, see if I can help us out of this one. Prior, other moments of, let's say, grieving, because my father had died a month earlier and I just kept his ashes for a while. I also thought I was doing the practice correctly. But there were always little pieces of self-pity or other kinds of trips that my mind was doing about that. This one time was just pure, intimate, no separation seeing. It was painful. But I'm not saying I was ecstatic. What I was saying is there was a, a certain kind of fulfillment in fully, is a dignity, you could even call it. Dignity in honoring my father's loss and my pain. And it had no ideas in it. It, it was not cultivated, trained. I read a, to the hospice train. had nothing to do with that. That's all useful, too. But finally, our practice is naive, innocent, open, raw, clear seeing, fresh all the time. We're learning how to do that. It's not something that comes it, like anything else worthwhile. It takes some practice. Does that come a little closer? Okay, last uh, something, a question. Sorry, Dr. Jump on that one. Jump on it. <laughs> my, my sense is, of what I'm coming back to, and maybe I can call, is, is that you're talking about judging the thought and saying a bad thought. Two, I'm thinking bad thoughts. 
And my example is that mindfulness may be as true without the matter as without the good stuff. But what if you do judge it? Then you'd see judging. Then right. Then, then you step back one more step. Yeah, what do you mean? Why do you have to step back? Just receive it. It's there. What's the stepping back? For me, I think of it that way because oh. I, I, if I'm judging a thought, I'm not automatically realizing that I'm judging. I'm just having, I'm just having a feeling of that bad thought. Yes, but as you practice more and more, you'll be able to see the judging mind. Right. So for me, I can step back and then make okay. it bigger. I'm going to leave you with this because it's time for us to stop. The probably you want to hear the president, and, or not the, the vice president, and, and the, the two aspiring presidential candidates. <laughs> what? Okay. I think they're much more fun. <laughs> Tonight, uh, Gore will try to be a party animal, <laughs> and uh, Bush will try to be a very uh, substantial foreign policy, heavy duty, I, whatever. Genius. Okay. Genius, okay. Um, let me leave you with this idea. I'm not going to go into it very deeply, but your question, your, the way you put it, uh, takes and it's a, very, it's a very important development in our practice. When we hear things like you read the instructions or some teacher says, be mindful of what's happening to you. Okay, sounds straightforward, and we try to do that. To begin with, especially as you keep doing it, you'll, you'll probably see that when you think you're being, uh, being mindful of what's happening, your psyche is getting mixed in with it a lot. This is a beginner. All of your likes and dislikes and uh, anxieties and apprehensions, in there, your psychology is coloring the seeing. With practice, you start to see that, and then it purifies. The seeing starts to, uh, and it, there's less and less of your psyche, uh, in a sense, polluting the perception. So then, it, let's say it becomes, oh, this is what they mean by a clear mirror. But there's still a self-consciousness of someone who's being aware of what's happening. Now, that self-consciousness withers away with time. And that, when you hear things like uh, observing without an observer, that's what that means. There isn't a, a self-conscious meditator uh, who's who's being mindful. To begin with, of course there has to be. You know, which we're learning a new skill, and we are self-conscious. Am I doing it right? Uh, Etc. It's like learning anything new. But as you start practicing, not only does the, uh, our psyche have less and less of an influence in the perception, but at a certain point, this separation falls away, and uh, there, that's real clear seeing. seeing. You can't force that. That's something that grows out of uh, out of practice. Um, and we're back where we started. Because that, that's the clear mind, uh, where there's no separation, that's the intimacy. Because at that moment, there's not a self-conscious me that's looking at what's happening. Now, to begin with, I think that many, if not most of us, do detach, especially from things that are frightening and unpleasant. So I don't disagree with what you're saying. But finally, it's not about detaching. It's not about pulling back and looking at it. Although to begin with, maybe that's the only way we can begin when we, when we look at fear. We don't want to go in close to fear because we're afraid of it. But little by little, we understand that real seeing is eye to eye, eyeball, and even that makes it sound like two things. But it's more, if you want to get to so know someone, let's just take an analogy, a person. Don't you have to get close to them? You, got, you have to see them, talk to them, listen to them, uh, etc. It's the same with self-knowing. It's you getting close to yourself. Uh, so at a certain point, it's not detachment, it's non-attachment, which is all the difference in the world. In non-attachment, you're, you're, you're receiving what's happening. You're letting it in and you're receiving it, but you're not, you're not for or against it. You're just you're experiencing it as it is. And then if you start to judge it, where you are for or against it, then you can see that too. And that becomes the next moment of mindfulness. And then little by little, that's where the liberation comes from being able to do that. Um,
real meditation begins with the death of the meditator. Right now, and I, I say this with respect because we have no choice, but to, right now the meditator is dressed up, it's the, the ego is, is camouflaged as a big meditator. It's the same ego that wanted to make a fortune, sleep with everyone, uh, you know, whatever it is your ego has wanted, wants, and so forth. And now it hurt, it, maybe it's done enough of that. I made a million, I've slept with everyone. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've been all around the world. Uh, what a spiritual, I'm, I'm not a spiritual person. I hear it's very important, especially in Cambridge. I better, I better try to be spiritual and eat organic food too. Okay, and so it becomes a new, the, the ego doesn't care. Whatever you want, it's so brilliant. It'll give it to you. You want to be selfless, great let me do it, I'll be the most selfless person in the room. But it's the same game. So, but how, you can't force it. So the meditator is that self-consciousness, it's still a me that wants to meditate properly, do it right, get an outcome, get a result, and how can you avoid that? I mean, that's where we have to begin. And then little by little, uh, you, get, you get on to yourself, and that part starts getting weaker and weaker, and what's left is thought-free wakefulness, thought-free wakefulness, and it's real clear seeing. Now, don't hanker after what you think is uh, observation without an observer, because that attempt to do it is also part of the same thing. It's going to be, again, oh, you want to just be an observer, with, uh, you just want seeing without a seer? I'll do that too, whatever you want. The ego is very, very amenable to anything, as long as it remains supreme. Okay, thank you for your patience. Sorry, I don't know how Narayan is using wise mindfulness. Uh, I mean, I could guess, but th that's silly because I could be wrong and you could ask her. Okay, can we have just a moment of silence? May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings be free from suffering. Thank you.